0: So next week, is going to begin a series of messages on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is the first of five major discourses or sermons we find in the book of Matthew, where Jesus gives just blocks of teaching in one setting. And it's in this first one, the Sermon on the Mount, he lays out a very practical, but yet a very challenging ethic that he expects us to live by. These are not a group of suggestions. These are not things he's saying, you know... It would be really nice if you would just give it a shot and see if you can do, you know, maybe three out of these eight or two out of the seven. These are things he's commanding us to do and he's telling us. And he's telling us very simply, very plain language, very clear. And he expects to be obeyed. And when I began to think about what to speak about today when Pastor first talked to me about it, this was falling in between a couple of series. So it wasn't in the middle of a series where there's kind of a topic that fits in. And Lord immediately oppressed on me this subject. He'd been kind of laying it on my heart already, but the idea of obedience and I couldn't think of a better way to spend a little time before going into a series in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about obedience. What does it mean and what are we called to? So what is obedience? Well, at first it seems like a pretty simple idea, right? You tell someone what to do when they do it. Anyone have children? Anyone ever been a child? You know that it actually gets very complicated very quickly. I didn't know you meant for me to do it now. I didn't know you wanted me to do it. I thought you were talking to my brother. Now, you may have said their name four times, but that's okay, right? I didn't know you wanted it done completely or, or correctly. Anyone ever, any mother ever tell your son to clean his room or your daughter and they come down and they, you're done? Yeah, we're done. And you know it didn't get done. That would be a miracle like walking on the water and because it's, it's been five minutes and you've seen the room. So you go up and it's not done. It's, you know, there's clothes everywhere, you know, and they don't do it. Obedience is not that easy we talk about obedience that we really it's very pretty basic we presuppose a few things there's two or more parties involved one of which has authority over the others right the others are subordinate there's direction given by the party that has authority to the party or parties that are subordinate and then those subordinate parties comply and do what they're told now before we get too far i want to take a minute to talk about one thing because we're only going to say it one time when we talk about obedience, by definition, without it's unavoidable, we're going to talk about something that people call works. You are not saved by your works. You're not saved by your obedience. It's impossible. That's good news, by the way. There is good news behind that because you could never do it. It's hopeless. We have no hope of eternity, and thankfully, this isn't the closing part of the message, but that's, there's no hope. God bridges that gap with his mercy and with his grace. And Jesus paid the price on the cross, and he gives us salvation. But that doesn't mean he doesn't expect anything from us afterwards. That's an equal mistake, and we don't want to make that mistake. We want to be ready. If we surrender our life to him, we have to be ready to give him everything and to serve him. So there are two types of obedience, right? Two basic types, or disobedience. I'm going to call them general and specific. So specific obedience is your obedience in a given situation, at a particular time and place, about a particular topic. Did I do what I was supposed to do in this instance? That's specific obedience or disobedience. General obedience is an attitude. It's a disposition of the heart, a, an inclination to be obedient, to obey the Lord. When the Holy Spirit saves us, he regenerates us and he takes us from going in this direction and he sets us on a different path and, puts, and he puts that inclination in our heart and then we begin to work and develop it. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. And we begin to, to drive. It's that inclination that causes us to get up when we fall and keep trying and keep going to get closer and closer to being like Christ. Disobedience separates us from God. And each individual act of disobedience is like putting a brick in a wall, right? Because when you do one, it's easy to do another. And you, and you get a little frustrated because you know you shouldn't be. And you do another, and, and it becomes easy. And that wall gets taller and thicker. And, and it's frustrating. And very often we turn away and don't even try anymore because of that frustration. Does anyone ever try to pray when you're in disobedience? It's not fun, is it? The Holy Spirit is annoying, right? He's a pain. You come and you say, Lord, I need help in this situation. You know, Howard, i trying to pick a name that is no one's name. Up here. Here's Howard. Howard is bugging me. He's doing something wrong. He needs to be dealt with. Give me strength. And the Holy Spirit says, wait a minute. Look what you did. And I want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about Howard. He's the problem here. And he might actually be the problem. But those, no, 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 I want to talk about you. And you say, I'm not going to look at that. We're talking about this. This is the agenda. Do you not see the memo I sent? This is the, and the Holy Spirit, he comes and he puts it, and he won't get out of your face. He won't stop. That's the Holy Spirit. I'm putting bricks in the wall. He's trying to take them out. He's saying, this is not how we have communion." He's trying to break down those, those barriers that we put up. But if we allow the Holy Spirit to cultivate this attitude of obedience, to work in our hearts, we're going to find the specific obedience It's just a natural outworking. It gets easier because it's what we want to do. At the same time, each time we we do a little bit, we obey in a little item, it gets easier to do the next one. So at the same time, each one helps the other. Our general obedience drives specific obedience, and our specific obedience in small little steps begins to work in us to make us to drive and, and improve that inclination and to work on that. This is the process that we call sanctification. The process by which the Holy Spirit makes us more like Christ as we walk with him. So today there's a few things I want to look at the scriptures and see what we can learn about obedience. And there are three, three main ones. The first thing is obedience means to do what God says. The second is to do it God's way. And the third is, and I need it to have three W's, so to do it wholly. To do it completely. To do, to do it without leaving any details out. So let's look at the first one to do what God says. We're called to obey and do what He says no matter what it costs. It doesn't matter. The cost could be financial, it could be convenience, right? It could be very often our pride, right? I've got I've to swallow a little pride here because I was wrong and I've got to get back on the right track. I've got to do something I don't want to do, right? We have to even. Uh, even in those settings, we have to do what God says. There are no situations where God says, "It's okay, disobey me here, because I realize that would be hard for you. God never says that. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 17. This is a story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to him. Excuse me. Get up, go to Zarephath that belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Look, I have commanded a woman... <clears throat> who was a widow, to provide for you there. So Elijah got up and went to Zarephath. When he arrived at the city gate, and very often, you know, Elijah got up and went. Very often, obedience is active. God's telling us, go do something. Sometimes he's telling us, don't do something, but very often he's telling us to go and do something. Elijah, just, he just got up and went. When he arrived at the city gate, there was a widow woman gathering wood. Elijah called her and said, please bring me a little cup, of, a little water and a cup, and let me drink. And as she went to get it, he called to her and said, oh, and please please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. And here she stops. She turns and says, but she said, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything baked. Only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in the jug. Just now I'm gathering a couple of sticks in order to make a fire to go and prepare for myself and my son so we can eat it and die. There's famine in the land. And when he makes this request, this is too far. And she stops and explains to him her situation. Okay, this is it. So Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go, do as you've said. He's very sensitive. But first make me a small loaf from it and bring it to me. Afterward, you can make some for yourself and your son. What nerve. Right? I mean, imagine, now when he asked for a cup of water, okay, that's common hospitality. It wasn't unusual, especially in an Eastern culture. To ask for a piece of bread, he didn't know the situation. That was okay. But now... I've explained to him that my son and I are going to eat this little bit and a handful of flour makes how much bread? Not a lot, right? We're going to make a very little bit of bread and we're going to eat it and then there's no hope we're going to die. We're going to starve. And he says, oh, that's good. Give me some first. Right? And here he tells her why. He says, for this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. So she proceeded to do. She obeyed according to the word of Elijah. And then the woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty, and the oil jug did not run dry, according to the word of the Lord he'd spoken through Elijah. In this case, she put God's commandment ahead of herself and her family. And her family. its One of the things you see more and more in the church, and it's in our culture, is we've, we've taken a good thing, spending time with family, and we put it ahead of God's call in our lives. You see it in the church all the time. People are reluctant to be involved in ministry, to do things, to do things that God's calling them to do. That's between you and the Lord to decide what that is. But whatever it is, spending time with family is a good thing. It's an important thing. It should be one of our priorities. But it doesn't come before God. It never comes before God. And very often, the best thing you can do for your family is not spend this time in this family picnic or do whatever with them, but show them an example of someone who serves the Lord and follows His calling. I'm very thankful. I grew up in a, in a home, in a Christian home with parents who were raised in Christian homes. And my parents set an example for me of always being involved in ministry and always doing things. And our family activities were going and doing things in ministry. We did those things together. I have a, several relatives, brothers-in-law and brothers who are involved in ministry. And their kids are now grown, involved in the ministry that they grew up going, getting dragged to all the time on Saturdays, every Saturday. And they're involved in that ministry now. And they're helping lead that ministry because that example was set. We need to do what God says. We need to do it God's way, no matter how much we may think we know better, right? God knows his plans and purposes. And very often, obedience is a test. God says, I want you to do this, 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 and this. And you say, oh, yeah, but I could do it this way. I want to see, will you do this, 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 and this? I don't want you to do it your way. I want you to do it my way. If you look at the Old Testament laws, especially things like the dietary laws, some of them are for health reasons, and we can point to those. Some of them are just because. There's no reason that some of the foods that are prescribed couldn't be eaten in a healthy way. But God said, I want you to be different. I want you not to do this, even though everyone around you is doing it. Everyone around you says it's okay. Even though you know it's okay, you've got a great recipe for rabbit. But I'm going to tell you not to eat that. And he sets those things up as a test of their obedience. Because if you'll obey him in small things, you'll obey him in great things. If you won't obey him in small things, you're not going to obey him in great things. That's how it goes. In the military, I'm trying to get too distracted because we're we're run out of time, but in the military, anyone here been in the military, been through basic training? Okay. In basic training, they coddle you, right? They say you think about whether you want to do what we say. No, what are they teaching? They're breaking down that natural resistance. And that has to happen because in a battle, if they say go, they can't have 14 guys say, well, now hold on a second, I think we should go that way. Or wait, let's have a focus group. Let's pray about this. They need to say go when you go, right? You need to have a, a group of men work as one. And the only way that happens is if in a simple, safe setting, relatively safe anyway, like basic training, that's broken down and you, you obey without thinking about it. God wants that from us too. Let's look at First Samuel 15 excuse me. Samuel told Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of hosts says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, children and infants, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Let's stop there. This passage of scripture is often used in really a bad argument by atheists. say, I can't believe in a God who would give a command like this. Well, that's kind of mixing apples and oranges. His existence has nothing to do with whether you like his commands. So to say you don't believe in his existence because of that, well, it doesn't really prove anything. But people point to that and say this is no different than other religions that command you to kill people. There is a difference. We can't spend time going to it this morning. But the thing to know is the Amalekites were a wicked people. And God had put up with them for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's already been a couple hundred years since the Israelites came up, and they were wicked before that. And the Bible describes the wickedness of the people in the area as having reached its full measure. In other words, it was so bad it had gotten to the top. God, it was beyond what he could stand. And now it's time for judgment, and God gives Saul this command. So let's see what Saul does. Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is next to Egypt. Good so far. He captured Agag, king of Amalek, alive. Uh oh. But he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else, in order to sac Oh, it doesn't say in order to sacrifice them, does it? Here. When the writer is telling you what they did, he just says they spared the best of them. Okay? They were not willing to destroy them. But they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. Thanks. right? Imagine God, well, thanks. You destroy the things that weren't any good. Uh, that's a principle you see with David. When David asks for a census, he sins. God gives him the choice of the punishment. He chooses to be in God's hands. And God brings a plague in the people. And David sees the angel that's administering the plague and killing the Israelites. And he, ba- he falls down and says, Lord, punish me. And God stops. He goes, that's enough. And on that plot of ground, David wants to make a sacrifice. And the man who owns it says, I'll give it to you. I'll give you the land. I'll give you the wood. I'll give you the oxen. I'll give you everything for the sacrifice. And David says, no, I will not sacrifice to God something that costs me nothing. I will only give him what costs me because that's really a sacrifice. Okay. Uh, Malachi, in challenging the people of Israel, says, you've, you've cheated me. And, that, and they say, well, how have we cheated you? And that, You've robbed me. How? by bringing worthless animals for sacrifice, by cheating the law, not bringing the best. The law called for the best. They would bring deformed. And he said, try bringing those to your governor. Try that and see if he would accept them. Try taking the same approach to what you give to the Lord that you take with what you give to the IRS. Now, independent of whether people, people are pretty careful about that, right? You don't just send the IRS and look, this is all I feel like sending you. Here you go. Because you know that in a little while, not too long, but in a little while, they're going to come for a conversation with you, and it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be good because it, do we take the same approach what we give to God as what we give to our governor? But they're not willing to destroy. They're willing to destroy the unwanted things, but nothing else. Then the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. I'm going to skip through a little bit here. And he says, I regret I've made Saul king. And you see Samuel he become angry with Saul, but cry out to God all night on Saul's behalf, praying. And Samuel tracks Saul down, and in, uh, in verse 13, it says, When Samuel finally found him, when Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel says, What's this sound of sheep and cattle I hear? Saul knows there's a bit of an issue. So he says, You notice before it said Saul and the troops here, is, Saul says, The troops brought them from the Amalekites. And spared the best sheep and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we destroyed. So he introduces this idea of, oh, we did it for a good purpose. We had another idea in mind. And we're going to sacrifice it. Stop, Exclaims Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul says, tell me. And Samuel says, although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you've annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. He did? I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back Agag. Right away, he's condemning himself, right? I brought back Agagat, king of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. Those are two contradictory statements in the same sentence, and he doesn't even get it. Okay? The troops took sheep and cattle from the plunder. The best of what was set apart for destruction. Another contradiction. It's set apart for destruction. That's what God has said. Take this and destroy it. That's the sacrifice to God. No, no, we're going to do it a different way. We're going to offer a sacrifice. So they're not doing it God's way. I took the best of what was set apart for destruction to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. Very interesting choice of words. And Samuel says, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. and To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord... He has rejected you as king. If you have any doubts about how seriously the Lord takes obedience, read that last line. Because of this, he's rejected you as king. Look at Uzzah. Remember Uzzah? Kind of a strange name. People may sound familiar. Uzzah was one of the Levites going along with the ark when David was bringing it back to Jerusalem. They put the ark on a cart, which disobeyed God's law. The ark was to be carried by the priests. They disobeyed it. Doesn't seem like a big deal, right? The, cart, the oxen stumbles, the cart's begin to tip, and Uzzah reaches out to keep it from falling on the ground. And he's struck dead, because they didn't. And David was, was terrified, and he was angry, but he was terrified of God. And for a while, he stopped and didn't bring the ark to Jerusalem. But when they did it, we're going to do it right this time. We have to do it, not just what God says, but the way he says it, and the manner in which he says it. And then thirdly, we have to do it completely, down to the last detail, thoroughly, enthusiastically. Right? When you were in school, this is probably the best analogy, there's things you had to do that you liked and things you had to do that you didn't like. Which ones did you do better? I have uh, my older boy particularly, when he works on a project and he's interested in it, it could take forever because he won't. He'll keep doing it and doing it and doing it, and he, he really gets into it. It's, I'm seeing it in him, but we all do the same thing right? That's how we should obey completely. Let's look at Second Kings chapter 4. Elijah has died. Elisha is now the, the prophet in Israel. It says, one of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband has died. You know that your servant feared the Lord. Now the creditor is coming to take my two children as his slaves. Elisha asked her, what can I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? She said, your servant has nothing in the house except a single jar of oil. Then he said, go and borrow empty containers from everyone, from all your neighbors. Do not get just a few. Then go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour oil into all these containers. Set the full ones to one side. So she left. After she had shut the door behind her and her sons, they kept bringing her containers and she kept pouring. When they were all full, she said to her son, bring me to the container. But he replied, there aren't any more. And then the oil stopped. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt. You and your sons can live on the rest. But the key is in that one line. He said, there aren't any more. We got them all. We got them all, Mom. I can imagine in that village there wasn't a single empty container in any house because they obeyed God completely. They they didn't say, well, give us five of your eight. They went and they did exactly what they were told. They got all the containers, and they said, we got them all. There are no more. We did it completely. Second Kings chapter 5, Naaman. Naaman is a great general in the Assyrian army from Aram. Aram is the same as Syria. He's won great battles, including over Israel, um, as judgment on the northern kingdom on behalf of the king. He's a brave warrior, but he has leprosy. Picking up in verse 2, it says, Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served as Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would go to the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease, probably leprosy. So here we'll stop right here. Here's doing what God says, no matter the cost. This girl is probably not even no well, more than ten years old. Okay? She's been taken captive and arrayed in Israel. It's entirely possible that the story doesn't tell us that she watched people that she knew. People in the village, her parents, her family maybe, slaughtered before her very eyes. But at the very least, she was taken from all that she knew, brought to a foreign land, and now she's here in the house of the main general of that nation serving his wife. She, had every, she might have poisoned him or tried to kill him in his sleep, right? Not only didn't she do that, but she's actually looking out for his... If she had said nothing, they would never have known that she was withholding something from them. But she knows what God wants her to do, and she does it anyway because she knows the God in Israel. So to cut through the story, Naaman hears this. He goes to the king of Syria. He sends him with a letter to the king of Israel. king of Israel gets all upset because he goes, he's trying to pick a fight with me. I can't cure someone from leprosy. And in verse 8 it says, When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel tore his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me, and he will know there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now, already, something's gone wrong here. There's an affront. Remember, we talked last year about the prodigal son. To some Eastern uh, customs with respect to greeting people. The more important the person that came to the door, the more important the person from the house that would go and meet them at the door. And the more important they were, you wouldn't just go to the door. You'd go out maybe to the end of your, your property. Or you might go down the road a ways and meet them. And if they were really important, like the king, you might fall down and bow before you. You might kiss their feet. And you would bring them back to your house in a great show of honor to that guest. Elisha doesn't go down the road to meet Naaman. Elisha doesn't go to the end of his driveway by the mailbox there to meet Naaman. Elisha doesn't even come to the door. Look at verse 10. Elisha sent him a messenger, his servant Gehazi, we know from the parallel uh, passage in Chronicles. He sent the messenger to the door and said, Go, wash seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. But Naaman got angry and left, saying, I was telling myself he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of Yahweh his God, and will wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. He is looking for a show, right? It's a big deal. Aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. But his servants approached him and said to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he tells you, wash and be clean? Now, these are some brave servants. Have you ever tried to talk to someone who's in a rage and reason with them and tell them they're wrong? It's a lot of fun, right? It goes really well. It's like trying to take a mean dog's food. It's not a good place to have your hand, right? It just isn't. Um, but they had the nerve to do that and they, and they tell him that. And then to his credit, okay, he listens in his rage and he, and he decides to go and he will obey. So Naaman went down and dips himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. Now just think about this. He dips one time, no change, two times, no change, three times. Naaman might have been getting a little angry again, huh? He was worried about being humiliated. This muddy river, the Jordan River, is not a clean place, right? Four times. Can you imagine the servants? That's five times. He doesn't look any different from here. I'm going to go check on the camels, right? I'm getting to the back of the line. I don't want to be anywhere near him when he comes out of that water. Six times. But Naaman, again to his credit, doesn't stop. He goes all seven times. And when he comes up after the seventh time it says, his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. Jericho, the Israelites are told, we've got a great new way to knock down walled cities. We're going to walk around them with the whole nation. Not the army, the whole nation. We're going to do it once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, we're going to do it seven times. That's a lot of walking. They all had their little, um, what do you call them? Um, I just forgot the name of them, the little things to count your steps. Maybe they had iPhones in their pocket. I don't know. But they're all tracked. They're like, oh, right, seven times. We're going to get a lot of steps that day, right? And they're walking around the wall. And you know, maybe the third lap or fourth lap. Can you imagine anyone saying, you know, by now I thought a few bricks might have fallen out of the top. Maybe the hinges would have started to come loose. I would have expected something. But they all seven times they walked. And then they blew the trumpet. And nothing happened until they did everything completely. And they blew the trumpet. And then what happened? It says the walls of the city fell flat. That, that word, and the connotation there is a little different than just the wall started to collapse. They fell flat. There's no way that naturally happens. I've heard that talked about and explained in, in better than I am right now. But they fell flat and they went in and took the victory. God calls us to do what he says, the way he says it, and to do it completely. And he does, in order to help us, he gives us a great example. He gives us Jesus. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. Starting with verse five, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Other versions say as something to be grasped. Okay. Instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his eternal form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. And in Hebrews chapter 5, he says, talking about Jesus, in the same way the Messiah did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but the one who said to him, you are my son, today have become your father, also said in another passage, you are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So, what's the example Jesus had? What did Jesus do? There's five things. First, he recognized the Father's authority. The first step of obedience is a step of recognizing the absolute authority of God in every corner, every crack, every crevice, every nook, every cranny of our lives, in everything. God has sovereignty. Nothing is outside of it. If even Jesus, who has existed in the form of God, means he's part of the Trinity, submits to the will of the Father, who are we to say, no, 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 this is mine, I'll give you this. That's That's what I'm willing to surrender. This I'm not willing to surrender. He recognized the Father's authority. Secondly, he emptied himself. From the Philippians passage, he says he didn't grasp or cling to his divine nature. What it means when it says emptiness, he emptied himself of who he was, of his reputation, of his rights as God. He emptied himself of all of those things and that identity and accepted in its place the form of a slave. A human nature became like us. He surrendered a much higher existence for a lower one as a human. If we cling to or grasp the notion that we're entitled to something, that our lives are our own, that it's mine to decide what I'll give and what I won't give, then we're missing the point of this passage. Jesus emptied himself of those rights and said, Lord, you have authority. You have sovereignty over everything in my life. I heard recently a testimony of a Muslim who would become a Christian, and he observed that, he said, you know, I noticed in Christianity, especially in the West, that if you look at your life, your life is a circle, and inside the circle is a smaller circle or a dot, and that circle is your life and the dot is your faith. But when I was a Muslim, the circle was my faith and the dot was me. It's a different approach. My faith is not something part of what I am. My faith is all that I am. I'm nothing without it. And it defines in everything that I do as we give him sovereignty. Beyond emptying himself, he recognized God's authority, he emptied himself, and then he humbled himself, even to the point of death. This goes beyond the other point. Not just death, but death on a cross. I wish we had time to go into, just as a reminder, the humiliating, horrific death of a Roman crucifixion. That God could have killed him in a lightning strike, right? He could have had a giant boulder fall on him and have him die instantly. But God had Jesus die naked and bleeding on a cross, humiliated and embarrassed for all the world to see, for you and for me. And Jesus accepted that and humbled himself and said, "Lord." I'm giving up all my rights, and I will accept whatever you have for me, no matter what it is. He also accepted the cost of obedience. In Hebrews 5, it says that Jesus learned obedience to what he suffered. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know something and then did know something. What it means is he went through it as a human. He experienced it. Okay? He learned that firsthand, the, the, the cost of suffering. See, God wants us to obey, not because he needs their obedience. This is like prayer, right? God doesn't tell me to pray because he needs me to fill him in on the details of what's going on, right? He doesn't need me to tell him that there are families in Dallas this morning that are hurting, right? In in Minnesota, in Baton Rouge, in all these different places, all these things have happened. Whatever, you know, the facts end up being, there's people hurting right now who had nothing to do with it, right? God doesn't need me to tell him that. He knows. But he still tells me to come and pray. Why? What a waste of time. Because he knows that I need to pray. It's for me. It's for my development. I need to pray because I need to grow in him. And that's one of the ways he helps me to grow. By putting my needs in front of him. By doing what we said before. When I'm praying about this, he says, no, I want you to look over here. He grabs your face like your mother used to. right, And squishes it together and says, look at this. This is what I want. That's what he does in prayer. Obedience is the same way. God doesn't need my obedience. He's not sitting up in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit saying... What are we gonna do now? Russ didn't obey. He didn't do what we wanted him to do there. Now our plans are ruined. He doesn't need me. He wants me to obey because he knows that I need to obey. It's for me, it's for my growth and for my benefit. And who better to submit to and to give your obedience to than the one who knows your purpose? He knows what you're for. We're trying to cram. You know, you ever put a puzzle together and Amy loves to put puzzles together? I hate it. It's like death. But you know you get that piece, and it should go here because this is the place they have a hole. And you're gonna—I'm ready to get scissors. I can make this fit, right? This can work, and I'm gonna jam this thing in here no matter what. And God says, no, no, no. I know your purpose. You go here, and it, and when you get it in the right spot, it it's it's perfect, right? There's no stress, no strain, no nothing. It goes perfect when you're in God's will. So he accepted God's authority, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he accepted the cost of obedience, and he allowed the Father to exalt him. He allowed the Father to define who he was, and he didn't worry about it. Again, back to Hebrews chapter 5, it says, the Messiah did not exalt himself to become high priest, but the one, and that's a capital O, it's referring to God, who also said to him, you're my son, today become your father, also says, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus said, you exalt me, you take care of it, I trust you. To define me and define my identity. In Philippians it says for this reason. Because previous verses he obeyed. To the point of death even death on a cross. For this reason God highly exalted him. And gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus sets the example of allowing God to define us and not being so worried about defining ourselves, right? This is especially challenging, although not solely, but especially for men. What's the first thing you say when you meet somebody? Hey, I'm whatever. What do you do, right? We define ourselves that way, don't we? And we feel sometimes so insignificant compared to others when you meet. Every, and everyone has, unless you're absolutely the very top guy in the totem pole, every one of us knows what it's like to meet someone who's impressive, who has done more than you have. I went to a, a school in New York City that's a specialized high school and. We had something like two of the, I think there were at the time 30 Nobel Prize winning alumni speak at my graduation. Talk about feeling like a failure, right? I just threw out the alumni letters, right, because it's just embarrassing. But when I worry about that, I'm wrong. God's going to define who I am. God will judge. And I would much rather be defined as someone who obeyed him and did what he wanted than as anything else you can name, anything else at all. When we fail, when we fail, not if, but when we fail, we don't need to be discouraged. Because just like God bore the burden of salvation for us, he paid the price for salvation, here again he steps in to help. Philippians chapter 2, 12-13 says, continue to work out your salvation. We just read this a minute ago. Then it says, for, and that word's key. It means, so you're going to do what I said in verse 12 because of what's coming now in verse 13. And here it comes, because it's God who works in you To will and to act according to his purpose. To will according to his purpose, that general obedience, that inclination, and to act, the specific, according to his purpose. God does that work. The expectation on us is perfection, or rather the the standard is perfection. But God's expectation, he knows we're going to fail. And he provides the bridge that brings us up. And he he does the work in us. There's going to be difficult times where God seems distant. The failures seem overwhelming and frustrating, and they make you want to quit trying. Every one of us has been there. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, great book, The Screwtape Letters, Screwtape Letters is a small book, but it's a a series of correspondence from Screwtape, a senior devil, to his nephew, Wormwood, a junior devil, about the human that Wormwood has been assigned to tempt. It's a great book. It's if you, you know C.S. Lewis, almost everyone knows him now from some of the, the children's books he wrote. But this is just a fantastic book. And you can see even to the point of them bickering a little bit. And you see, because it's a one-sided conversation, you see Screwtape responding. But Screwtape says to Wormwood in this one passage, he goes, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. And it's a far longer passage that talks about how God uses valleys in our life to grow us more than the peaks. It's just too long to read it all now. But he ends up by saying this, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. A human no longer desiring or wanting to, but still intending to do the enemy's will, do God's will, looks on a universe where every trace of God seems to have vanished, Wonders why he's been forsaken, but still obeys. There's a great um, prayer. I'm going to read this. and While we're reading this together, the worship team will come back. Michel Coist, uh, a French, I think he was a monk, he wrote this. And it has a lot to do with falling into temptation and failing. And I think I've read this before, but it's just so powerful. He says, I have fallen, Lord, once more. I can't go on. I'll never succeed. I'm ashamed. I don't dare look at you. And yet I struggled, Lord, for I knew you were right near me, bending over me, watching. But temptation blew like a hurricane, and instead of looking at you, I turned my head away. I stepped aside, while you stood, silent and sorrowful, like the spurned fiancé who sees his loved one carried off by his rival. When the wind died down as suddenly as it had arisen, when the lightning ceased after profoundly streaking the darkness, all of a sudden I found myself alone, ashamed, disgusted, with my sin in my hands. This sin that I selected as a customer selects his purchase. This sin that I paid for and cannot return for the storekeeper is no longer there. This tasteless sin, this odorless sin, this sin that sickens me, that I have imagined, sought, played with, fondled for a long time, that I have finally embraced while coldly bypassing you. My arms outstretched, my eyes and heart irresistibly drawn. This sin that I have grasped and consumed with gluttony. It's mine now. But it possesses me as the web holds captive the fly. It is mine. It sticks to me. It flows in my veins. It fills my heart. It has slipped in everywhere as darkness slips into the forest at dusk and fills all the patches of light. I can't get rid of it. I run from it like the master of an unwanted and mangy dog, but it catches up with me and rubs joyfully against my legs. Everyone must notice it. I'm so ashamed that I feel like crawling to avoid being seen. I'm ashamed of being seen by my friend. I'm ashamed of being seen by you, Lord, for you loved me, and I forgot you. I forgot you because I was thinking of myself, and one can't think of several persons at once. One must choose, and I chose. And your voice, and your look, and your love hurt me. They weigh me down. They weigh me down more than my sin. Lord, don't look at me like that, for I am naked, I am dirty, I am down, shattered with no strength left. I dare make no more promises. I can only stand bowed before you. And then God answers. He says, come, son, look up. Isn't it mainly your vanity that's wounded? If you loved me, you would grieve, but you would trust. Do you think there's a limit to my love? Do you think for a moment that I stopped loving you? But you still rely on yourself, son. You must rely only on me. Ask my pardon and get up quickly. You see, it's not falling that's the worst, but staying on the ground. Keith Green is a Christian singer and songwriter back in the 70s and early 80s. He was killed in a plane crash. What he's remembered for, though, was being a, a real prophet. He didn't, there were, I don't remember all the details of what he did with his ministry, but he made a lot of his albums affordable. He was there to minister. He wasn't performing. And he wrote these words in a song called, To Obey Is Better Than Sacrifice. He said, to, taking the words from Samuel, he says, To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. And I hear you say that I'm coming back soon, but you act like I'll never return. Well, you speak of grace and my love so sweet, how you thrive on milk but reject my meat. And I can't help weeping at how it will be if you keep on ignoring my word. Well, you pray to prosper and succeed, but your flesh is something I just can't feed. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sundays and Wednesday nights, because if you can't come to me every day, then don't bother coming at all. To obey is better than sacrifice. I want hearts of fire, not your prayers of ice. And I'm coming back quickly to give back to you according to what you have done. According to what you have done. I asked the worship team to sing this song this morning. It's a great song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. wonderful The Wonderful Cross is a, a remake of it. Great old song, talking about the sacrifice and the cross and what God did there. But there was one line particular that I wanted to focus on today. At the very end of the song, he says... Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This morning as we sing this song, I just want you to take a few minutes and think about what Christ did for you. And are you ready? Not only when, as pastor speaks the next few weeks and, and points out things in the summer of the mount that they may be challenging to us. But are you ready even now to begin saying, I'm going to make a sacrifice. I'm going to obey. I'm going to do God's will. And maybe there's a particular thing that he's talking to you about right now. If you want to come and pray, the altars are open. There's people who pray with you. Please, mature Christians, come and do that. But wherever you are, let's take a moment and just say, Lord, prepare our hearts. You have something to say for us. You know, messages aren't given in a day. There's a series coming up for a period of time. We're going to look at this. I'm not going to let anything distract me. I'm going to listen to what you have to say. And I'm going to obey. And I'm going to begin to turn those areas of my life over to you that before I wasn't willing to turn over to you. Amen. Let's sing.